0: Shalom, friends, and welcome to the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregation's weekly Torah Commentary series. This week, we're discussing Parshat Vayigash. My name is Dave Nickel from Ruach Israel in Edom, Massachusetts. The beginning of Parshat Vayigash is the climax of the story of Joseph and his brothers. The narrative tension is at its highest point, as it appears that Benjamin will be enslaved by his not yet revealed brother, Joseph. And the other brothers are sent home to break the news to their now twice bereaved father. And then, quoting from the text here, Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let your servants appeal to my Lord. And do not be impatient with your servant, you who are the equal of Pharaoh. Judah goes on to recount the story up to this point, giving the reader his perspective. I always took the words of his monologue at face value, hearing them as being in a pleading, humble tone. But Rashi, the great commentator, makes an unexpected comment on the phrase, do not be impatient. He says, we learn from this that Judah now spoke harshly to Joseph. And Rashi does not stop there, even suggesting that the clause you who are the equal to Pharaoh, is a veiled threat. Interpreting it as something along the lines of, if you annoy me any further, I will kill you and your master Pharaoh too. Rashi, following Midrashic sources, hears a barely concealed anger under the surface of Judah's words. To someone who has read this story from childhood, knowing that Joseph is about to reveal his identity, this is unexpected. But this reading is surprisingly well-attested in the rabbinic sources. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, in her spectacular work, The Beginning of Desire, Reflections on Genesis, helps to flesh out this reading. She writes, In this passage, Rashi understands the obviously conciliatory tone of Judah's rhetoric as the plain meaning of the text, but the menacing, reproachful notes detected by the Midrash as undertones. Ramban, elaborates on this idea which possibly originates in the midrashic comment that Judah spoke both softly and harshly. In Ramban's view there is anger hidden in Judah's words though he dare not express it unambiguously. This reading is somewhat at odds with the common reading of this story where Joseph is the righteous orchestrator of his brother's repentance. But there are problems with that assumption. I sense that Joseph is in fact more conflicted, unsure Even his own motivations is locking Simeon up in prison until the brothers return, assuming they return at all part of his master plan. After the whole ploy with the goblet, how did he know that they would not just leave Benjamin with him in Egypt and go back home? Maybe Joseph has some residual anger or is indecisive or confused about his identity. Perhaps it's more comfortable to keep his old life at arm's length than to deal with forgiveness and long buried emotional trauma. If so, then Joseph desperately needs Judah to call him out, to break the dam of his reticence, to rip off his mask. If we follow this interpretation, what accounts for Judah's anger then? A hint may lie in the exchange right before this, at the end of the previous Parsha. We read, Judah replied, what can we say to my Lord? How can we plead? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered the crime of your servants. Here we are then, slaves of my Lord, the rest of us, as much as he who was in whose possession the goblet was found. But Joseph replied, far be it for me to act thus. Only he in whose possession the goblet was found shall be my slave. The rest of you go back in peace to your father. Zornberg suggests that it's these last words, go in peace, that set Judah off. Shalom, peace, is a motif weaving its way throughout the story of Joseph and his brothers, the word is broader than the English word "peace," however, to include wholeness, completion, safety, and health. In Judah's mind, returning without Benjamin to the death of his father in a permanently fractured family is no kind of shalom. Joseph has claimed to be a God-fearing man, and we get the sense that he takes pride in acting justly. The cup was found in Benjamin's bag, so only Benjamin will be punished. Judah's suggestion that all the brothers remain as slaves is laughed off. Far be it from him to act thus. This is Egypt, cradle of civilization. Nobody does law and order like us. We only punish the guilty. But Judah sees through him, go in peace employs a narrow vision of Shalom. It is a platitude, a joke. This is why Judah is livid. What we see here are, in my opinion, two different conceptions of justice. Joseph cares about justice, certainly. He likely sees this whole charade as a kind of justice for how his brothers treated him. As a boy, he was a tattletale, and it seems he may have grown up with a tattletale's sense of justice. This conception of justice we detect in Joseph is well represented in our contemporary culture. This, just, just, this kind of justice is fair, mechanical, and punitive. An eye for an eye, meted out on the individual cu- with his hand in the cookie jar or the goblet in his sack. According to this conception of justice, letting a criminal go free is a miscarriage of justice. Brothers who have done wrong need to be punished. And even if they have repented, they have to prove it. Judah's justice, on the other hand, is nuanced, empathetic. It's the justice of the rabbis who, while acknowledging the concept of an eye for an eye and capital punishment, organized their legal system in a way that made them impractical and irrelevant. Judah's justice is oriented Toward shalom. Instead of punitive, it is restorative. Justice, as the word is often used in English, does carry the sense of retributive justice, punitive justice. In that sense, Joseph's justice might seem more natural to many of us today. This kind of justice is about the right people being punished for crimes. But in the Jewish tradition, the dominant aspect of justice, tzedek, is re- redistributive justice. Hence the Hebrew word tzedakah, meaning charity or obligatory giving of money to the poor. Justice in our tradition, then, is not preoccupied with crime and punishment, but is focused on shalom, restoration, and wholeness, and finds its ultimate embodiment in Yeshua, who, like Judah, was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of restoration, even if it wasn't fair. In a feat of profound self-control, Judah avoids the pitfalls of his righteous anger, however, and while subtly calling out Joseph, he tells a story designed to arouse his empathy. In his case, the, the story succeeds beyond his wildest expectations, because, well, you know how it ends. Today, the true meaning of justice is not an academic point. In the United States, for example, much of the legal system takes Joseph's approach to justice because law laws accrete over time. We now live subject to a vast corpus of law, which none of us know, end to end. James Duane, an American law professor, writes, I quote, Legal experts now agree that just about everybody in the nation, whether they know it or not, is guilty of numerous felonies for which they could, could be prosecuted. One reliable estimate is that the average American now commits approximately three felonies a day." Because of the breadth of statutory law is so expansive, the American system of justice has a certain flexibility in how it can be wielded. The law can entrap us all, but only certain people are policed in a way where those unknown felonies are used against them. And the legal system is experienced very differently by those with the mostly economic resources to navigate its labyrinthine halls. The results are clear enough. For example, a cursory look at incarceration rates by race or ethnicity in American jails shows wild imbalances. Nearly half of Americans have experienced a family member incarcerated, but that half is overrepresented in more more vulnerable communities. Families are separated and communities hollowed out when fathers and brothers spend much of their lives in prison. Judah worried about sending his, brother, his father Jacob down to Sheol in sorrow. Just as today, Benjamin's captivity would have an impact that extended far beyond just the presumed guilty party. Joseph, in his position of power, portrays him, himself and his government as just. We do fair punishments, only the guilty are punished. Indeed, some of us may say the same of our own legal system. But Judah sees past such platitudes. Systems are not inherently just, and systems established by power tend to protect the powerful. We know well that Egypt was not, in fact, a shining example of justice. Fortunately, Joseph had the benefit of being able to hear his voice, hear the voice of his powerless brothers giving him correction. Brian Stevenson, who has committed much of his life to giving voice to prisoners, writes in his book, Just Mercy, a Story of Justice and Redemption. Quote, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. End quote. Perhaps it is time for us to put aside our platitudes about justice as well and listen carefully to the stories of the accused. This is Dave Nichols signing off and wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. For more commentaries like this one, visit umjc.org/commentaries.